Welcome to another episode of Trees and Lines. Sig Gugamus, president at Ecological Solutions Incorporated, joins us to talk about his clear width calculator, the relationship between cycle and reliability, and more. Have a listen. Hope you enjoy. Welcome, Sig. Really appreciate your joining us for today's podcast. Happy to do so. Yeah. You know, uh, you reminded me not long ago that we've known each other for about 40 years. Um, yeah. But not everybody on that's listening may know you. So how about a little bit of background? Tell us who you are and what you're doing these days. Okay. Uh, so name is Sig Guggenmoose. And background is, like some of your other interviewees, um, kind of fell into this business a little accidentally. Um, I went to the University of Guelph, uh, actually to take a degree in wildlife and fisheries. But after completing my first year, I had uh, met a fellow who was in the graduating class uh, in wildlife and fisheries, and he was one of two people out of a class of 22 that had gotten a job. So a career change was planned for me. This didn't look good. So so instead, I did a degree in horticulture. And uh, I ended up working in uh, summer jobs, horticultural research uh, under uh, Dr. Gus Tarani. And I found research really appealing. I really enjoyed that. And that gave me a good introduction to statistics. Back in the days when we didn't have computers, well, computers were punch card type things. And uh, so uh, we did analysis of variance all by hand. Um and uh, I left university for a period of years and then decided I go back and complete uh, my degree. And uh, on doing so, that next summer, uh, I got a job with Dr. Jerry Stevenson doing uh, herbicide research on Ontario hydro right-of-ways. And that's kind of what started me down this path. And uh, back then, um, I was working with a product called Dowco 233, which you now know as Garlon. And... Uh, yeah, so I found I found the research really interesting. Uh, upon graduating in 1977, my plan was to do graduate work. However, uh, Dr. Jerry Stevenson was taking a sabbatical for a year. So I thought, well, I'll just uh, kind of hang around the university or unless I see some plum jobs, apply for them. Well, I saw what looked like a plum job for Amchem involving research. And in that interview, I met Roy Johnson. Well, I didn't get that job. I got, I came second in the competition, but they really liked me. And so they hooked me up with a contracting uh, company that they had an ownership stake in. And, uh, so I, I took that job with the contracting company and we were doing, um, uh, work for utilities, railroads, uh, counties, that, that sort of thing, vegetation management. And uh, I worked in the railroad division then. After that, uh, after a year, when Jerry Stevenson came back from his sabbatical, I had so much enjoyed working for this small contracting company that I said, no, I'm going to stick with this and uh, never returned (laughs) to it. So that's kind of my educational background. Um, And I mentioned some of my mentors, Dr. Gus Tarani, Dr. Jerry Stevenson, Roy Johnson became a great mentor to me. And uh, then there was Tom Plett of Conrail and... Uh, subsequently, I worked with uh, Neil Thiessen, and uh, he was a mentor. Um, so I ended up in the contracting world, and um, 
our contracting company was located in Ontario, but we were bought by a Calgary firm in 1979. And after operating us there, uh, carrying on for a year, they decided they would move us from Ontario to Alberta, where they already had a division that uh, was in uh, vegetation management um, for utilities and uh, combined us into a company called Ace Vegetation Control Service and asked me to be the general manager which I accepted. And so that took me to Alberta. Uh, some years later, Transalta came looking for me. And Phil, you're familiar with this because how that came about was um, uh, ECI had done a study for Transalta utilities. And uh, so one of the pieces of advice they had was they should get some more professional staff on board. So they basically headhunted me. And um, so I ended up at Transalta and I was there for 10 years. I left Transalta when I was put in a bit of a unusual circumstance. Um, our CEO was very interested in the whole greenhouse gas thing because Transalta at the time, I think we were something like 92% of the generation was coal-fired. And he could see uh, the way things were going with greenhouse gas issues that there may come regulations that had dramatic impact on Transalta's business. So he wanted to get kind of head of the curve. So I was being chased to take part in working on greenhouse gas issues. However, the forestry group didn't want to let me go. Well, after about eight months of resisting this, I realized like how long before the CEO just makes a declaration that I'm <laughs> I'm working <laughs> on greenhouse gas issues and <laughs> my responsibilities for forestry would continue at the same time. So I offered to leave the company on contract back to both groups. Mm -hmm. And that's how I ended up consulting and started that in 1995. So over the last 20 years or so, well, there's more than that now, but for, for the last 20 years, what uh, I've really been focused on is working with utilities where I'm supplying data uh, and information, which they in turn then supply to the regulator to inform general tariff applications, uh, to look at uh, vegetation management program effectiveness, um, and it'll look for areas of improvement, uh, specifically with respect to costs and reliability. So that's that's kind of it. That's, that's you. where good. I've been and where takes me up to present. <laughs> yeah, well, good. You know, uh, I was going to say you worked with Hugo Shaw and Neil Thiessen for many years, those 10 years at least, I guess. And yes. three guys that have made a huge impact on our industry, each in their own way. So that's pretty cool. Uh, and I know you like research because uh, I've been working for a couple utilities and uh, interested in improving reliability by shortening their cycle. And I, I do some research and your name comes up time and time and time again. You've done some great stuff, Sig. Um, but respond to that question. What should they expect if they're shortening their cycle to improve reliability? When you look at reliability, you kind of have to break it down. Um, are you looking at you know, so so trees causing outages, are they first a gross categorization? Are they fall-ins or are they grow-ins? So the cycle, if you're looking at pruning cycles, then you have to break that down again. Um, if you are not in a situation where you have mandated clearance requirements and you're not in a fire-prone area and you don't have trees uh, that 
I, I look at it that they give off volatile oils, trees like eucalyptus. Now, we, we've all seen, we've, if we've been around this industry for a while, you've seen trees growing up into a conductor, and you might see a little bit of sparking, and there's a gap, like maybe a quarter inch, and it sparks across. And typically what happens is that heats up that tender growth, it desiccates it, and it just stops the growth and nothing happens. However, if you have trees like eucalypts, it immediately bursts into flames. And I mean roaring flames. So if you have that, if you have that situation, then it is different than um the situation where you just it's okay that you can have them grow up. Now, shortening the shortening the cycle uh with um trees growing up, you don't have you don't have those uh um eucalypts you don't have you're not in a fire prone area and you don't have mandated clearance requirements in that case well it's hard it's hard to say what you're going to gain out of shortening your cycle uh it's only if you get so far behind that then you get caught up and basically hot spotting the system but there's a place where you could um you could allow a, a certain amount of the trees growing into uh, into the conductors because it's only going to cause an outage when you have a substantial bridge between phases or it's growing up between the phases and nothing's happening until the wind blows and between the movement of the trees and the conductors, you end up with phases slapping together. But it's not, you know, it, it's not really going to uh, cause an outage for you. So... There's that. If 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 you're in a fire prone area, then you need to be cautious. If you get a good enough um, uh, size, um, let let's say you've got something that at the base is or at a breast height is about four inches, and it's moving over into a conductor. Now you could have arcing down at ground level, and if you're in a fire prone area, you don't want that. So you know it, it depends. Each utility's got to look at what their situation is. Could you simplify for maybe the audience, like you talk about, you know, utilities that may not have, uh, you know, mandated requirements, right? Um, or areas that may not have mandated requirements. Like, I would assume or I would expect, maybe this is a naive thought, but that we're at a, we're at a place where requirements are almost established across the board in varying degrees. Like, take fire prone out of it because... I get that part, but maybe give us an example of, you know, a part of the country or, or, or a particular space that, that doesn't have those requirements. I'll give you, I'll give you first, like, so I am in the province of Alberta and we have uh, mandated clearance requirements, a distance. Um, uh, there's a minimum distance that trees are allowed to approach a conductor that have to be maintained all the time. It's kind of like what our, our NERC standard does on transmission, but this applies, this applies also to distribution. California has mandated clearance requirements. Um, the state of Oregon has one, a little bit different approach in that theirs has to do with whether or not you can climb the tree and so on. Um, but, uh, in those cases, you know, you have a limit of approach so that a tree can get to the line and you need to maintain that. California will actually go out, you know, they have people go out and look to see if you are in violation and, and, and find the utility. 
Um, in Alberta, they, they don't really go out and hunt for those situations. In fact, when I was at Transalta, we turned it around the other way because if we would have an uncooperative landowner and wouldn't allow us to do the pruning, we would notify the electrical protection branch that we had the situation that was now uh, broaching the limits of approach and the landowner would not allow us to do anything about it. And then they would go, the electrical protection branch would send that landowner a letter saying that should something happen there, that the landowner is now equally liable with the utility for any damages. <laughs> so <laughs> that usually, that usually scared them enough to get cooperation. We usually got a call like, could you get a crew here right now? <laughs> <laughs> so that's 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 the difference. And in other cases, you, um, other states like they don't have a requirement, a minimum distance required between trees and the line. Okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah, vast majority of utilities don't operate under re- right. required clearances. Got it. Right. Um, Say, so I forgot to also mention on this that you're our first. Well, I'm Canadian, and you're our first Canadian guest, I believe. So uh celebratory moment there yeah <laughs> uh, as, a, as a as a fellow canadian you know talk a little bit about your time in consulting like um you've done a lot of work for a lot of different utilities it seems like a bulk of them are on the west coast right like from puget to some of the canadian players well um, no not necessarily not necessarily have, have you you've been across the board I, I i did i did some major work with national grid Uh, back Uh, that was actually during the period i was working with them when the big blackout happened in the northeast and i was just praying that it did not before i i heard where it started i was just praying it did not occur on national grid system oh no oh man but but it did not it it was not it was not there but it definitely got the it definitely got the point uh point across that you know how important um electricity is to us and uh and that vegetation can be a major issue we yeah, yeah. we consultants did a lot of prayer that night <laughs> uh-huh. oh, i'm sure <laughs> yeah everybody wondering who was the one yeah yeah in terms of cycles you know it it, it depends now i've been working on um, i've been working with a client on growth studies um over the last oh, well since 2015 and what we're doing is we're having trim crews provide uh, data uh, when they're doing the doing the pruning, and um, we've got it divided into three eco zones, um, segregated whether it's crown growth or lateral growth uh, species, and they look uh, back as far as five years in terms of growth recorded, and there's some interesting things that come out of that um, when you look at what the maximum amount of growth is and look at the mean growth that we have. And, and there, by the way, there's over, we've got over 6,000 records in that database now. And you look at the mean growth and you divide the mean growth into the maximum observed over since we've collected the data, like by, by species and by ecozone and by top or side trim. You end up with numbers ranging from 200 to 700%, which tells you that growth is highly variable. And um, so I look at it. You can have a timed cycle. However, you're going to need to modify it by getting a condition assessment. In terms of the timing 
for distribution because because of this variability in the growth. And by the way, 20 to 30 percent of the locations, if you look at what the upper confidence, what the number is for the upper confidence uh, level, you've got 20 to 30 percent above the upper confidence level. Again, suggesting to you, you're going to need a condition assessment. Now, if you're in that situation where you don't have the um, requirements for distance between trees and lines mandated for you, then in that case, what I would suggest is you look at, okay, what is the mean growth that we have? Divide that into the clearance you obtain on pruning. That gives you a beginning point. Then instead of taking the mean growth, go one standard deviation above. That basically says to you, about 16% of the trees are going to be in the line before you get there on the next cycle. And that that strikes me as a reasonable amount, and you can do that on distribution. As I say, if you don't have that mandated clearance requirements mm. and you're not in a fire zone. Oh, confirm that. University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point did a benchmark, and I believe the average contact at the time of the tree work was 21%. So you're pretty close. Okay. Yeah. On, on transmission, I, you know, there you're looking at a different standard. And so what I would suggest to get that starting point on transmission is to go two standard deviations above, leaving you roughly two and a half percent. And even that, you know, because transmissions, you really don't want any outages there. So then you're going to have to go and inspect to find where's that two and a half percent or 2.2 percent that we need to pick up one of the big things in terms of shorter cycles is because now when I, when the, between my work and what I've seen in the literature, um, you end up with on distribution systems, tree caused outages, uh, being, uh, or I should say the grow ins being two to 25% of all the tree caused outages. The corollary of that is at 76 to 98% of the outages are caused by tree failures. And then you need to, you're going to need to separate like what, what kind of tree failure? Is it a branch failure? Is it trunk failure? Is it uprooting? And there, you know, I, I've written about one thing I forgot to mention in my background is that I wrote for, I think it was six years for transmission distribution world doing that. a monthly article. And uh, in there I set out, you know, really, Utilities should be gathering a lot of data in terms of the types of outages, relying on the servicemen when they go and, and re-energize. Well, to them, if it's green all year round, it's a pine. <laughs> you know, there's no distinctions made. It's a pine. <laughs> and, and they won't give you the species information. They, they can't really give you um, the de- details that you want. So you need to send an arborist out. And and I recognize, you know, on distribution, there may be a lot of these and it becomes pretty time consuming. But you can set a priority to say like, okay, we're going to send an arborist out to investigate, you know, outages that occur between the substation and the first protected device, for example, uh, or, or make it somewhat broader than that. But to gather information that gives you what was the what was the type of failure? What was the species? Um, how far? You know, was it in right away, outside the right away? How far away was the tree from the conductor? 
And I'll tell you, some of the information that I've uh, picked up doing um, inventories for utilities is that generally, when you when someone's looking from the outside, driving the road or from walking the right of way and looking at the trees, the number has the percent of hazard trees that you find is about two percent. However, because I look at when I do inventories, I want the full utility forest. So I have people go 10 feet inside the adjacent forest and gather data there about the trees. And one of the things is to look for defects. What we, what we found there was that when you do that, 11 to up to 30%, or actually it was over 30% of the trees inside the forest show some level of decadence. So in other words, utilities do a great job of identifying hazard trees along the edge, but how, how deep does that go? It doesn't extend to beyond 10 feet inside the forest. And so if you, if you start looking inside the forest, you're going to find more, more hazard trees. You need information like that. And again, all of this stuff becomes very useful in terms of communicating with the regulator. You know, do you want us to send someone out? And inspect all the trees to take the time to do, and the expense to do that. And I got to imagine the it, answer is no. <laughs> well, like, the difficult the difficulty there, Tej, is, is I don't know that many utilities have done it. Now, I just I just recently did some work uh, in West Virginia, and I was informed there that their transmission group actually did do do some of that, basically for their own information, you know, to inform them in terms of what is what is the difference. And, uh, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty substantial, and, but there's, there's bound to be a huge cost to doing that, having someone walk in. And I've seen utilities, you know, play that, oh, we expect our contractors to check all the trees. <laughs> well, let's look specifically at the wording in the contract. Is it clearly set out that they are to inspect all the trees? And if not, then you're not likely getting that and you're not paying for it. So, so be honest, you know, like if you're a utility, be honest. Have you got that stated that they inspect every tree that on failure could contact a conductor? Um, so yeah, you, and, and, and so in a certain sense, if you wanted to do that, you could, you could tremendously improve, um, your, your hazardry program. And that would have an impact on a big impact on reliability. Are, are you, when you mentioned inventory, I'm guessing you're, you're, I saw that you, have been doing a lot of work with LIDAR, geospatial data, et cetera. So are you then taking a lot of the data that the utility is gathering and analyzing it, processing it? Like, how are you going about doing an evaluation for the utility and then also factoring in their budget um, requirements to give them a more optimal solution? Because obviously, like, some of the things that you're talking about going, you know, 10 feet in, doing a full assessment of where the true risks are. There always seems to be a mismatch between what the PUCs understand and what their budgets are being allocated to the utility for versus what the actual problem is. And then it becomes a, a dollar Tetris. You know, so how are you going about sort of optimizing that whole thing for the utility so they get best outcome? I look at it uh, that there's a certain amount of work that you need to do every year. And I come up, I, 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 I took this, I borrowed this really from forestry. In forestry, you have an annual volume increment. So this is guys looking at 
production in the forest. There's an annual volume increment. Well, and, and, and I coined the term utility forest because we need to recognize, you know, that, that we're dealing with the same things for different reasons, but we're, we're dealing with a system that's the same. And so there's an annual volume increment of work that occurs that you need to be removing, addressing every year. If not, you're falling behind. And what my research has shown is the nature of that expansion. It's a logistic uh, progression, which is to say it follows an S-curve. So it starts off slow, but beyond a certain point, you have a period of exponential expansion, and then it levels off at the top. In other words, it's as bad as it could get <laughs> when right. you get to the top. Right. Yeah. And and, and and that's how I go about it. But I have not, um, I, I've used uh, LIDAR data in terms of um, uh, setting out for utilities where, uh, one. this takes me into a, another topic, which is I developed a, a system um, that I call the optimal clear width calculator. And it, the output is called the risk factor. And so what I do is develop a risk factor by span, by side for companies along the along their lines, and, and so far this work I've done only on behalf of transmission companies, and uh, and, and that's where I've used lighter. But I haven't in terms of when it comes to doing the inventory. It's I subcontract work to crews going out, mm. actually doing measurements in the fields, and it's sampled. You know, it's sampling across the electric system mm-hmm. to get the data. Yeah, I see. Okay, interesting. And and Ted, you just took me into another topic there in terms of you know what really causes uh, what where, where do tree related outages come from? And it's basically the major thing is tree exposure. Um, the utilities I've worked with, when it comes to uh, growing outages, it's been what I've seen is growing outages are responsible for two to five percent of the tree-related outages. So the vast majority are coming from some form of tree failure. And then the utilities that actually collect that data that I suggested, you know, should be collected subsequent to a tree failure, send an arborist out and get that information. What they found was 70% of those tree failure outages would not have been prevented. Had they gone out the day before and seen that tree, they would not have deemed it a hazard tree. So basically, <clears throat> tree-related outages are coming from the amount of tree exposure. Now, I've done work with two different transmission systems and looked at, um, and, and transmission was great for this because, let's look at it. How, how does transmission control the amount of tree-related outages? Wider right-of-ways, taller structures, which basically means greater clearance between conductors and ground. Is there a difference? And the tree-related outage experience between voltage classes. Well, pretty well everyone who works on a transmission system can say, yes, there definitely there is. So then I looked at, okay, so what are the factors that make up for this difference? And and I, by the way, it isn't just the width of the right-of-way. Specifically, I'm interested in what's the clearance between the outside conductor and the tree trunks on the forest edge, which I call the clear width. So... Does clear width account for that difference between the voltage in uh, the outage experience between these voltage classes? Well, the correlation there was sometimes yes, sometimes no. 
that depended on how big a difference did you have between the voltage classes. So in other words, if you had, let's say for 69 kV, you had a 50 foot uh, right away, which might have given you, uh, let's say 30 some odd feet clear width. Uh, but the 115, you had 120 foot right away and you had the 70 foot clear width. So you had a big difference between the two. In that case, yes, there was a correlation. What other factors do we have? What about the line height? No, didn't come up as significant. What about tree height? Didn't come up as significant. Now, the reason being is because in sampling, you know, you, you, you've got tree height this much at one place and the next place is another tree height. So it's variable all over. And, and so that wasn't significant. I lump all of these things together and add one more thing. So I look at line height, tree height, clear width, and tree density. How many trees per acre do you have? which is part of that information we get from work in the forest. And that creates a risk factor. And that risk factor was found to have a tremendously strong correlation to the outage experience. The only other one that had a really strong correlation to the outage experience was the number of trees, the total number of trees per voltage class miles wait a minute so in other words it's tree exposure the total total number number of trees per per mile of that uh, uh, voltage Ah, class okay 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 so both of those things the risk factor and the one is a direct amount exposure the trees per mile and the risk factor is a more detailed uh risk exposure in that it also factors in if you look at the trees along the side, what's the angle? You know, like if they could hit the line, do they need to fall at like it would be very small risk if they needed to fall exactly 90 degrees. But if they're closer to the line, then you have this arc of exposure that the line has. The risk factor accounts for that. Well, and with that, I was able to uh, develop um, a regression equation that found that basically makes that that explain that difference in tree-related outage experience between the voltage classes and makes it predictable. And it accounted, it, or I should say that the R-squared value was over 0.95. So for those who don't know statistics or have forgotten their statistics, what that implies is that there's only, there's less than 5%. If you identify a variable, another variable, it's got to be less than 5%, which means it's not significant. So in other words, that that tree height, line height, clear width, and tree density have captured the majority of the variables you need to make to determine what the risk is. And 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 with that, what you can do is look at what if we widen the right away? Um, can we you know reduce that tree exposure, lower that tree exposure? What is the improvement in reliability that we can expect? And you can accomplish that with that, or you could look at what if we increase the height of the line? Uh, what what will that do? And and uh, for those sorts of things, I have you been able to use lidar data to come up with things like that in a steady state environment. Like the data that you're looking at, that obviously doesn't account for event, right? So if if the forest 
and its state changes because a storm came through. And even though it didn't knock out a bunch of trees, it's changed their uh, health, maybe in some in some <laughs> way, shape or form. Your study and your data, is, it changes, obviously. Right? right. So so like if you've now put a utility, you know, you've given them the risk factor, they built a plan around it. The budget has flowed. Storm hits in year two. You'd have to kind of recalibrate based on your risk profile to adjust that. I'll tell you a good thing about that is if you're looking at, let's say you widen the right of way. Okay. That applies even during storms. Okay. You know, that, that benefit applies even during storms. Now, the thing is, if you widen the right of way, in that case, you need to widen it substantially because you've created a new edge. Yeah, And so trees now are more vulnerable to failure because they have not experienced that loading that you're now exposing them to. So for a period of, I look at it like five to eight years, there's a higher risk of trees failing on the edge and coming into the line. So you need to make the change big enough that while you have more trees uh, failing and falling into the right of way, they're not hitting the conductor on doing so. So in other words, that arc of exposure that I said, you need to narrow it down so much that you can have trees falling off the side of that. But, you know, so, so you have to balance it out that way. And, and yes, and the conditions, Ted, you mentioned the conditions change. When I did, I did work for uh, Puget Sound Energy and we looked at uh, uh, wind loading and things too. And we took a 10 year time slice and said, okay, if, the next 10 years was like the last 10 years, then we could predict this. But obviously, you know, there's going to be, there's going to be some variables. And, and so, and, and this, by the same token, you can't go and take what was done for Puget Sound Energy and go apply it to another utility because your tree species are going to be different. The weather conditions that you have are going to be different and so on. Yeah. The so, principle hey, remains, but yeah. the specifics vary. So, Sig, I, I'm really enjoying this uh, analytical breakdown of how you think about risk and how you've quantified it and can communicate, um, you know, with all the different variables. Here's a question for you. You've been in this industry a long time. Is there somebody out there like, you know, Sig's nemesis that has a completely different approach or refutes kind of the work that you do because, you know, they've got a different theory, a different approach? looking you know generating different results or is everybody generally kind of operating in the same sphere but just slicing the pie a little differently i, I don't see anybody that has a total uh, a totally different approach i mean there, there, there's people that say oh they can they can provide utilities with a uh, uh, risk evaluation along their lines and so on i don't see anyone that has done the level of work that i've done in terms of defining that risk so yes, people, you know, you can go and take satellite imagery or lidar imagery and say you got so many trees along your line, but you haven't combined all those variables that I do. I, I've, I, and 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 as you've seen, uh, Tej, I'm big on on numbers and statistics. Yeah, <laughs> that, yep. that's I the approach that. that I like. And, oh, okay. and, and I had a I had a client that uh, put me put me in touch with someone who was wanting to uh, get into this business and they were looking at it, that they were going to do, um, you know, machine learning, uh, artificial intelligence and so on. And uh, 
this was going to be a great thing and they're going to be able to sell it to utilities. And I pointed out to them that the variability is so great. Oh, well, well okay. You're, I, I said, you know, in terms of the growth studies, the variability is so great. How are you going to do that? I mean, the statistics say you can't just predict it. You have such variability. Uh, oh, well, we're going to incorporate weather. We're going to incorporate soil and so on. I said, yeah. And, and given that I worked on greenhouse gas issues, I can tell you in soil, you have variability. Move 30 feet and it's totally different. Mm-hmm. So how are you going to incorporate all, all of yeah, that? Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I, I, I don't I'm know, you. you know, and, and, and consequently, if someone comes up with something, I want to see it feel, field verified. I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you an example from that. When the LIDAR providers first came, you know, really started, uh, coming onto the scene in the early 2000s, you know, they were very impressed with, they now had the resolution down to this small amount, you know, we're, we're talking, you know, centimeters. So that's great. However, what I wanted to find out was, okay, you've gone, done the scan. Have you gone back out in the field and checked how accurate was the scan? Because, yes, your technology gives it the two centimeters, but what's working in the background is all these algorithms. So I need to know how good is your algorithm. <laughs> and, 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 and not everyone does that. Not everyone goes out to the field to verify the accuracy of the algorithms they're using. Sig, I'll tell you, the first research project I worked on was a right away, and the field crews were pacing a distance and writing it down to the tenth of a foot. And I always thought, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just a mismatch. You know, somebody needs to be verifying the data. Yeah. Something that, like, interests me very much, and I'm just starting to obviously, like, you know, fill to me is, you know, a repository like yourself of so much information, so much history in this space. You know, when we think about carbon sequestration, we start thinking about the right of way as an asset uh, rather than just a liability, um, start to think about, you know, carbon value of the footprint. So, hey, right away X, but that utility A owns is worth the equivalent of, I'm just throwing a number out there, $20 million, you know, based on its carbon credit value versus this right of way and we've cleared five million dollars of that value this year and etc your work obviously centers around risk how much of your work now has also tied into that side of it you know the environmental preservation of the right of way uh you know value yeah yeah, yeah. it 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 has it hasn't uh Tej, although interestingly i don't know how many utilities have done this but um, I did that. I told you, you know, that I left, I, I, I went consulting because I was being chased by the CEO to do work on greenhouse gas issues. And one of the things we did was to look at right away, uh, in terms of, uh, carbon sequestration. And it turned out very, very positive. And we thought environmental groups would give us a good pat on the back for doing that kind of work, but no, we got nothing no, for we it. Got nothing. Right. <laughs> yeah. But, but yes. Uh, now, now you look at it, you know, if you're putting in a new right away, you're removing this biomass. So there's a big drop at the outset. But, um, as time goes on, like with, with the approach of letting shrubs, you know, grasses and shrubs grow, it is actually very good. It's a, it's a positive. Um, and, and in terms of, I mean, went back in my Transalta days, we looked at right-of-ways and environmentally too. Um, 
we had greater species diversity and abundance on our right-of-ways than, for example, this was on distribution. So you'd have like we'd have the line on one side of the roadway and we'd be maintaining that on the other side. The county, for example, would be maintaining it and doing whatever they did. And we had greater species diversity and abundance on the areas we maintained than what appeared on the county side, which typically was just dealt with by mowing. Sig, I could do this all day with you. I mean, I feel like we have we've just scratched the surface of uh, a lot of your work and impact and research. So um, I know that we've covered a lot today, but we should uh, we should do a continuation of this discussion. I don't know about you, Phil, but um, yeah, I'm fascinated by by Sig's Sig's a researcher, and it always comes through. Oh yeah, his, <laughs> yeah. his, his view is, is super super interesting and very. I'm a math guy, so I like. I like things quantified, the statistics side of things. <laughs> yeah. I think this is the first conversation I've had where you have this level of uh, granularity in terms of the data. So super interested to kind of continue to explore stuff. Yeah, there's uh, there, there's a lot of other topics to get into. You know, like um, I mentioned Neil Thiessen that I worked for being one of my mentors. And so he was fabulous in terms of customer relations. So that's a whole other area to talk about. One of the other big areas is in terms of relationships between utilities and the regulator. And I, I, you know, what I've seen is an attitude of, um, well, they're against us. And so they're really scared. Or if we buy them enough lunches, we'll get cooperation. (laughs) And I look at it, neither one of those is really effective, you know, (laughs) and there's, there's a whole area of discussion, you know, how, how to approach the regulator because I've had, I've had what I look at as success. Now, even in terms of, like, I'll give you an example. If the regulator, you come up with a proposal, as I did uh, for Puget Sound Energy, where uh, if we go out and remove what amount? Of, I think it was something like 8% of the total tree exposure. It was, it was about 380,000 trees. So if we identify the areas, and this, this is that stuff with the, the risk factor. Where's the areas of high risk? And let's shift those to lower the risk and as a consequence there's an overall benefit to the system we could obtain a 42 percent reduction in tree related outages which would apply in good weather or bad weather and the regulator said well 380,000 trees and if we approve this gosh we're going to get the phone calls so no thanks don't do it yeah but in terms of utility okay they've been told not to do this you've offered you know, a solution to the issue. Now it's not the utility's fault. Yeah. Well, I think we should, we should reserve hopefully some time with you and maybe focus on some of these topics, you know, the customer service side of things and that piece, you know, the regulator and utility dynamic um, because it's important, especially now uh, what we're seeing right now in this, in this climate uh, regulators have been pretty, aggressively rejecting initial rate cases and the utilities have have gone back to the drawing board and have to you know solve for this much work with this much money Um, right and and so you know how utilities are choosing now to prioritize uh, the risk profiles haven't necessarily changed but their ability to execute and manage that risk with limited resources of course has so um i definitely would love to talk more about how your recommendations are shifting based on this different environment, right? Um, one thing we noticed, of mm-hmm. course, is a fire takes place, a storm takes place. 
uh, there's a correlation to budget expansion, right? Everybody doesn't mm-hmm. want to end up on a newspaper right. or, right. and so, but as, as things have kind of calmed down over the last three or four years, budgets have as well. And so, but in order to prevent from getting back into those complicated situations, you've got to continue to do the right things. And so I'm, I'm always curious how someone like you who has so many years of experience has the data. When you see the shift in money, you know, how much does the variability of your recommendation shift? Mm, yeah. Well, I'll give you, I'll give you a teaser, Tej, where I have an <laughs> example teaser. of a utility yeah, that I, like, uh, I, like I went, I went to them. They wanted, they wanted to talk about risk and they had problems in terms of a general tariff application. And I said, it's going to take some time, but I'm going to get you data. And what we're going to do is we're going to transfer the responsibility to the regulator if they do not want to address this. Mm-hmm. Wow. And they will be scared. And the day after the rate case was done, the VP called me up and he said, Sig, you're right. They were scared. They agreed to every recommendation you made. Yeah. That's, well, that <laughs> fear, fear, fear will definitely... <laughs> drive certain levels of outcome. That's for sure. Um, well, this was awesome, Sig. Let's, like I said, let's find some more time to continue the dialogue over a couple of more episodes. Um, I don't know, Phil, if if you have anything else you want to tackle. No, today. I'd love that. Well, yeah. no, I. But there's just so much time, to talk about with Sig, and you know, yeah. it was a, it was an absolute pleasure to to just get through this today. This was uh, this was amazing. So, really. So how it. many years have you been out of Transalta Consulting? I left there. I set up the consulting business in 1995. Oh, okay. So, so that's why almost 30 years <laughs> yeah. now. Yeah. No, this is great. Uh, Say so you, uh, you really kind of really innovative way of thinking about things. Uh, congrats on all the all the great work that you've done and the impact you've had on the space. Pretty impressive. Well, thank you. Appreciate your taking the time today, Sig. And we will follow up. Definitely. It'd be great yeah. to have you back. That's it for this episode of Trees and Lines, brought to you by Iapetus Holdings. If you like the show, please give us a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify. If you have any questions or comments on any of our episodes or ideas for topics or guests, we'd love to hear from you. Please contact us at treesandlines at iapetusllc.com. We'll chat with you soon.